As we open God's word uh, this evening, I want us to begin by thinking of a question. And just uh, think right now to yourself, uh, what do you perceive to be the greatest threats to this nation right now? The greatest threats in this nation. What, what might you first think that to be? Now, as you think about that, my guess is that most of you did not think of the threat of some foreign power. Probably most of you didn't think about uh, being attacked by an enemy nation. Though, really, at, at one time, that definitely would have been the thing you thought. Most of you probably thought about something internal. Some state of affairs within the country itself that poses a threat to peace and stability and uh, human flourishing. And we know throughout history that not only do nations collapse through attacks from without, they fall through corruption from within. And that's why we recognize that it's so important to be in a society that is just, where crime is punished, where wickedness is not allowed to reign. As we remember what the proverb says, that when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Nations need to be secured not only from threats without, but they need to be preserved from those corrupting threats from within. And that's why the law is given and enforced so that we all may live in peace and prosperity. Solomon, in our text we read, he's at the very start of his reign. And his father, David, he worked to secure the nation of Israel from threats external. He subdued their greatest enemies for hundreds of years, preeminently the Philistines. And so Solomon doesn't really have to worry about external threats anymore. But as always, he is concerned and needs to be concerned that his kingdom is going to be established on a foundation of justice and that threats from within are neutralized so that peace can be preserved and that his reign will be one where justice is meted out appropriately and wisely. The theme, as we read in this chapter, is the establishment of the kingdom. That pops up five times in 1 Kings 2. The kingdom is established, okay? The, the foundation of Solomon's reign is getting laid. But what we see in this chapter... It doesn't necessarily first, at first glance seem kingdom establishing. It's simply four examples of people being punished for crimes. Of this sort of judgment being meted out. So what we learn from this passage today, what I want us to see is that the wise exercise of just judgment is necessary for the establishment of the kingdom. Or we could say that peace comes through judgment. And as we'll look at this example in Solomon's kingdom, we'll see that similarly, God's kingdom of peace is established through the wise exercise of just judgment. Take, take a look at verse 1 with me here. This is a transition. David's giving his final charge to Solomon. And this is what David says as he knows his time to die is near. He commands Solomon, his son, verse 2. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. And show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commands, his rules, and his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons play close, play, pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, 
you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. What David is telling Solomon here is that for the kingdom to really prosper, Solomon needs to be a God-fearer. One who takes heed to God's commands and his words and seeks to put them into practice. First in his own life, living righteously. But then the evidence that Solomon is one who is a, one who cares to obey God's word is that he's going to also be one who seeks to see God's laws implemented politically in the society that he's ruling. The evidence of his godly character will be reflected in godly civic behavior. Because law obedience, as one commentator says, is the condition for promise enjoyment. If the enjoyment of God's blessing in the land he gave his people, with the leaders he gave his people, will be their keeping of the covenant. And so David's first instructions to Solomon that would evidence him keeping God's justice is the punishment of Joab. First of all, there's three things he says. He wants Solomon to punish Joab for murdering people in cold blood, something David, uh, he never did. David failed to mete out justice on Joab. Um, and if we remember that in Romans 13, it says that government's given not only to punish evil, but also to reward good. David wants Solomon to reward the sons of Barzillai for helping David to, to treat them well. But he also wants him to punish Shimei, one who we can read in 2 Samuel 16. He followed David as he was fleeing for his life, cursing him, blaspheming him, throwing rocks at him for hours. And all David's men wanted to go kill this guy, but David had mercy on him. And later on, Shimei comes to David in chapter 19 and says, please be merciful to me. And David is merciful. But that doesn't mean that he ought to be absolved for his crimes. David wants Solomon to exercise justice in these three particular instances. Because there's a significant change coming in Israel. Verse 10 tells us that David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned was 42 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father. And his kingdom was firmly established. There's a transition here. There's a new authority. And whenever there's a transition of authority, it's essential that that authority be um, displayed appropriately right away, lest things start turning into chaos. Uh, here's what I mean. Uh, we see many examples in our lives of when new authorities come, uh, the limits of their discipline are always tested, right? Think of uh, substitute teachers, right? The substitute teachers into the class... And the very first thing that's happening is all the students are testing to see how far can we push it with this substitute teacher? How much can we get away with, right? So a good substitute teacher finds a way to, in a sense, have, have a firm hand right away to quell the chaos before it erupts, right? And so if Solomon's going in the same way to be a new authority figure, right? This is also a transition from an old, seasoned, respected king to a pretty young man he, he must establish that this is going to be a kingdom of justice where there's appropriate punishment for crime. Uh, this is important for the establishment of the kingdom, lest the kingdom turn to chaos and be torn from within. And so again, we're going to learn that Solomon's kingdom will be established 
through his personal righteousness and public justice. And as we read, we saw four examples of Solomon carrying out justice in this chapter. And let's take a brief look at each of these. First, we have Adonijah. So if you remember Adonijah from chapter 1, he was Solomon's older brother, and he wanted to be king. And so he tried to, in a subversive coup, take over the throne. But David found out, Solomon took the throne, and Adonijah bowed out. He knew that it was too risky. Solomon would have the support of David and more of the kingdom. But he hasn't lost his aspirations for the throne. And as we read, he, he was trying to take the throne in a much trickier way. He thought that if he could marry David's personal attendant, Abishag, one that people might have thought had a very intimate relationship with David, that he would, in a sense, have the king's power. That was kind of how it worked in these days, that if you could take the king's wives, you would, in a sense, have the king's authority. You remember um, Absalom pulled a stunt like that, where, where he lay with all of David's wives, wives, saying, in a sense, I am the king. And uh, Bathsheba doesn't seem to notice this, but Solomon sees what Adonijah is doing, that he's making a second attempt for the throne. And to be honest, Adonijah doesn't even deserve to be alive at this point. He was treacherously trying to take over the kingdom when he knew Solomon was the rightful king. And he's doing it again, and this time he receives the just reward of his deeds. And uh, we read in verse 24, Solomon says, As the Lord lives, who's established me and placed me on the throne of David my father and made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Notice that uh, Solomon actually goes through the proper channels here. He doesn't strike him down himself, but uses the head of the military arm of the state to carry out the justice. And so his treasonous brother, who was not content to have his younger brother on the throne, he receives the rightful end of his rebellion and treachery. That's how Solomon deals with Joab. And this shows wisdom. In order to mete out justice appropriately, it takes wisdom. And David recognizes this as he charged Solomon. So in verse 6 about Joab, David says, Act therefore according to your wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. He says, you do the wise thing here. David also charges him the same with Shimei. He says, now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. Carrying out justice is a display of wisdom. And this is the right end for Joab. Second, Abiathar. Abiathar was the priest who was supporting Adonijah. So he's a part of his treachery. But Solomon deals differently with him. Verse 26, take a look. And to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord your God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So even though, in a sense, Solomon could have argued for Abiathar's death, he takes mitigating circumstances into account and says, hmm, when I take all the facts into account, the fact that you actually served God many years and you faithfully served my father David, 
I actually think the correct punishment for you will not be death, but first, uh, the loss of your occupation. You're not going to be allowed to be, in a sense, a clergyman anymore, a priest in a religious affairs. You've definitely lost that right. And you're going to be confined to, to the town you were born in. You have to kind of go back to Anathoth. A different punishment, but a wise and just judgment from Solomon. He loses his job. He's not allowed to be in that service anymore. Thirdly, Solomon deals with Joab. Now, Joab murdered two men in cold blood, Abner and Amasa. And he had disputes with these guys in war. But as David said, in peacetime, he plotted and killed them. So this was two instances of first-degree murder on the part of Joab. And for some reason, David never deals with this. And we, see, we saw Joab, he ran and thought, hey, if I'm in the house of God, no one will touch me. They'll be too scared to kill me in God's presence. But Solomon actually considers it all right. And so Solomon, in verse 31, tells Benaiah, strike him down and bury him and take away from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. This guilt, this unpunished crime, was in a sense sitting with unpleasant heirs on the king's house. And so Joab receives capital punishment for his crimes. Benaiah again puts him to, get, to death. And an interesting result when we consider the history of the nation of Israel is that this results in a totally new leadership structure in the government of the nation. Instead of Joab, Benaiah becomes the new military leader. And instead of Abiathar, Zadok is the new high priest, and he is the line of high priests from now on. A significant leadership change. That's what happens to Joab. And the last example is the example of Shimei. And here Solomon takes a different tactic. Verse 36, take a look. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. Do not go from there out to any place. For on the day that you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood will be on your own head. So David for Shimei considers it appropriate to put him under house arrest. He puts him under a probationary house arrest where he's not allowed to leave the city of Jerusalem. So a measure of freedom, but not unlimited freedom. Uh, it's kind of like um, a, month or a month or two ago, uh, my wife and I, we were exploring Detroit and we decided to rent those little electric scooters, you know those electric scooters you see people zipping around on? It's a fun way to explore the city, but we quickly realized that if you go outside of a certain area, they power down, and they're like, go back into the zone, go back into the zone. And so you realize that you're actually, you feel free, but you're confined to this little ring that the electric scooters are allowed to stay in. And, and that's kind of what uh, Shumei has here. He's confined to Jerusalem. He can't leave. But foolishly, he does leave. He thinks probably he can get away with it. Maybe Solomon won't notice. But Solomon is told. And so um, Solomon basically tells Shimei, he says, you know exactly what you've done. You know your crimes deserve death. I had mercy on you. I gave you this punishment. But you have violated your parole. Now you will receive death. And so again, Benaiah, at the king's behest, he puts Shimei to death. And then the final statement that ends the whole chapter, the concluding thought for these four punishments is, 
So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And and the significance here is that if God did indeed want his people to live under a king in the promised land and enjoy peace and prosperity, it would have to be a land of faithfulness, a land of justice, a land of covenant keeping. And we know the history of Israel, they um, go astray from that all the time. And they fail to live up to what God has for them. But if Solomon, under his rule, the people would enjoy God's blessing, they need to enact justice properly, quickly, and wisely. Because the reign of peace will be established through the wise exercise of just judgment. Okay, and here's the question for us tonight. Here's the question that we ask when we look at this passage. And the question is, why Is judgment necessary for the establishment of the kingdom? Why do we have to deal with all this messy, this punishing, this killing? Isn't that kind of backwards, you know, hundreds of years ago, kind of barbaric? It seems vindictive and punitive. Why do we need judgment? Well, there's much we could say to that. But the one element I want to focus on is that judgment is is required because of justice. Because of the nature of of justice. Uh, This term is often, it gets confused with a bunch of things, but the simple classical idea of what justice is, is giving what is owed. Or we could say it's doing what is right. Or treating someone as they deserve. That's really the simple idea. It's giving others what they are owed. And so we know that As everyone is an image bearer, all people are image bearers of God, they deserve to be treated a certain way. We owe it to treat one another with kindness, right? We owe each other the telling of the truth. That is something we owe. That is the just thing to do, the right thing to do. And so, when we fail to treat people as they deserve to be treated, what happens is that is an injustice, and what it does is it creates a debt of justice, as it were. We failed to pay them the honor they were owed, and we now have, have a debt be- between us. Um, th- this might help this uh, make more sense. If, if you imagine the example, say I'm talking to you, and we're kind of joking around, and you know, I try to make a joke, and then I realize later that when I made that joke, it kind of didn't land right, and maybe you might have been hurt or offended by that. And I think to myself, I'm like, ah, Oh man, I really owe that person an apology. Right? Have you felt that? You think, I owe them an apology. And it's interesting that we use that language. That idea of, I owe them an apology, is an idea of justice. That the way I write this debt I've created against them, for something small, might just be the offering of an apology. And then when they receive the apology, it's as if the scales of justice are righted. And we recognize that there can be harmony once again in the relationship. Now, in society, uh, we have two types of law, criminal law and tort law. Criminal law is um, for things that we call crimes. And the reason something is considered a crime in society is because it's considered an injustice to all of us. That's saying we believe that we're all owed to live in a certain kind of society. One where we can feel um, that we're safe. One where we can feel at peace. One where we can pursue success. And when someone takes that through violence 
or uh, various actions that disturb peace, we say, you don't just have a debt to that person you victimized, but you've actually created a debt of justice to all of society. And when criminals then are punished, the point of that is to almost, is to right the scales of justice in the nation. And when we think of corrupt or unjust societies, we're thinking of ones where that scale is always tipped, where the guilty are always going free, and this injustice hangs in the air of the country. I'm sure we can think of some very obvious injustices in our own nation that make it feel like we are walking in a, in, in a constant state of something being not quite right, something wrong being done, and we long for it to be righted. That's how crime works. It's a debt against society. And it's interesting how David recognizes this with Joab, that Joab's two unpunished crimes are hanging over the kingdom. In verse 31, he says that in striking down Joab, it, there, it will take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. This guilt needs to be purged. And to write the scales of justice like this, to purge the guilt, as it were, it takes great wisdom. Because from the earliest age, we're all born with very finely tuned justice meters. Okay? It doesn't take long before parents start hearing uh, these words. It's not fair. Right? It's not fair. That's saying, I feel that something is unjust. Right? It's not fair. But that stays with us throughout our life. And there's a very delicate balance in this, right? When we think of, um, say, famous cases where there's someone who has done a crime and the evidence is so clearly stacked against them, but then, say, on some technicality, the case has to get thrown out and they go free. We're, we're angry. How could that person get away with doing that? That's an injustice. That's wrong. The, the scale is way on one side. Or when we hear other stories where someone, say, is wrongfully imprisoned and they get punished far worse than they deserve, we similarly say, how could that happen? How could that innocent person be imprisoned? Um, I don't know how many of you guys saw the uh, movie Just Mercy. It was really wonderful, but it, it told this story of someone wrongfully accused, wrongfully imprisoned, and you just want to see justice done so bad. And getting it right, not over-punishing, but not under-punishing is really hard. Even as uh, parents, you guys that have children, you know how hard it is to be like, what is the right punishment for this thing that, the, that my child did? Right? I don't want to give them worse than they deserve, but what is fitting? What is the appropriate punishment? And it takes wisdom to think of these things. And Solomon's wisdom is shown as he meets out appropriate punishments. And this helps establish the kingdom to be one of justice. And this is God's kingdom. Psalm 97, 2 reminds us that righteousness and justice are the foundation that establish God's throne as well. We're told that righteousness exalts a nation in Proverbs 14, 34. But sin is a reproach to any people. And Isaiah 32, 17 tells us about what happens when justice is done. Isaiah says, the effect of justice will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and security forever. Because a nation that justly 
and wisely and appropriately punishes is one where there is security, where there is comfort and peace. And in, in this way, the meeting out of just judgment establishes Solomon's kingdom as a kingdom of justice, which is the way to a kingdom of peace. And so, what might we learn from the example of Solomon's kingdom for the kingdom of Christ? Right? We, we've heard that Solomon is a type of Jesus. His kingdom is, is a small picture of what Jesus' kingdom is like. Jesus is the wiser, the greater Solomon. He is the perfect king. And like Solomon, Jesus' kingdom will be established through the wise exercise of just judgment. We know that and we confess that Christ is coming again. And he's coming again to bring a kingdom of peace where the lion lies down with the lamb. But also a kingdom of righteousness and justice. We're told in Revelation that the new earth will be a place where justice dwells. Where righteousness dwells. This is the kingdom Christ has in store. But that kingdom of peace and justice is going to be brought by way of judgment. Because Christ isn't just coming back as a king, but also as a judge. Because you see, the scales of justice are terribly imbalanced in this world. The blood of many innocent cries out. God has not received the worship that he deserves, that he is owed, that is just to give him. And there's a sense in which one might accuse God, say, how do you let the scales be so tipped? How do you let so much injustice reign on this earth? But one day, those scales will be perfectly balanced as Jesus, with greater wisdom than Solomon, gives each one exactly, exactly what they deserve. Romans 6.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is death. What are wages? Wages are what you are owed. The wages of sin, what is owed sin, is death. And eternal death, we're told in scripture. This is the punishment that will be meted out on the wicked. And at times, this is really hard for us to understand. And this is something many of us wrestle with, is this idea of how is that just? How does that punishment fit the crime? Everlasting death feels like it's an overpunishment. Often, often this, is, this is what, if we're honest, we can think. For, for the things we see in this world, the people that seem nice that we meet, how is that going to be an appropriate punishment? Well, what we have to do here is we have to admit that we do not see as God sees. And our minds are small and finite. And so we have to go by what we understand God's character to be. That Jesus is all-knowing. There's no piece of data that he's missing. He's all-wise. He's the perfect balance of justice and mercy. And so whatever punishment Christ decides to mete out on the judgment day will be the exact perfect appropriate punishment that each person deserves. No one will complain that Christ did them worse than what they owed. No one will receive less than what they deserved. But 
on that day when we see, when we finally understand the nature of human sin, when we finally understand the nature of God's justice and holiness, we will agree with Christ and say, you have done all things well. And we have to trust God even when it's hard to understand in our minds. We have to confess and trust that God will do what is right. As Abraham confessed, he said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And he will. And we have to trust that. And as we rejoice that Christ will right the scales of justice eternally, there's also something fearful for us in that. Because we recognize that in a real sense, we're all guilty. We've all failed to render God the worship that he deserves. We see that in all of us, there's something of Adonijah. Something that likes to lift ourselves up. To rule our own lives. To say, nobody tells me what to do. We can see ourselves in Abiathar. um, A faithless backslider. uh, Following God at one point. Following ourselves another. A failing to live up to even what we know we used to live like. We see something also of Joab in our hearts. Joab the murderer. Christ reminds us that anger towards our brethren is like a murderous heart. And we've had murderous hearts and have hated others. And we stand condemned. We've also been people who have tongues that drip poison, like Shimei cursing and blaspheming the king. As James said, we, with our tongue we'll bless God and then speak against people. We'll slander leaders in the land. We'll slander leaders in the church. We'll spread gossip and lie. And like each of these men in, these, in this passage, we see that we stand condemned. And you know, perhaps each of these guys thought that they might get away with it. That David would forget, or because they were in the kingdom, they would be safe. And sometimes I fear people think that just because they're in the church, they're going to be safe. There's no hiding from God's all-seeing eyes. You can hide your sin now. You could be living in patterns of terrible, unrepentant sin and never be found out in this life. But one day, the books will be opened. Every thought of your heart will be revealed and held up before the brightness of the purity of Jesus Christ. And what will you do on that day? You will receive the just judgment that your sins deserve. And that would be the rightful state of all of us. But our God delights in showing mercy. God so loved this world. He loved this world so much that he gave his son. He gave the Lord Jesus to bear our sin. To take on and cover our guilt. To bear divine justice so that we could live in peace And eternal life. And so even though we deserve the sword of judgment. That sword of death that Adonijah and Joab and Shimei received. We will not receive that sword. Because as Isaiah told us in the 53rd chapter. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds... We are healed. And so Christ's kingdom of peace, 
the one that is coming physically one day, is established now in every heart that has repented and trusted him. His kingdom of peace is established in us because through Christ, our guilt, that debt, that cosmic debt that we owe, is removed. And so though justice calls for our crimes to be punished, they are punished in Christ for all who have faith in him. And even though we know that one day Christ will come again bearing the sword of divine judgment, Christ came the first time not to bear the sword of divine judgment, but to receive the sword of divine judgment. He received that sword of death that all of us, Joab's and Adonijah's and Shimei's, deserved. That we might have the gift of life. And he is still waiting. He's waiting to come again in judgment. Why is he waiting? Why is he delaying? Why is he delaying the writing of the scales? We're told by Peter that it's so that you and I have time to repent. To forsake our sin and trust in the Savior because the Father desires to have a bride for his Son for all eternity. And he will have her. 2 Peter 3, 9 reminds us that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That is, taking ourselves off the throne, admitting our guilt, confessing our need for Christ, like that publican saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't think that you can escape divine judgment by paying off your debt by doing enough good deeds to right your bad deeds. It's a debt that can only be repaid by the perfectly righteous, perfectly holy Son of God. But the beautiful truth is that now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's mercy for you. There's mercy for me in Jesus. And so there's no time to delay. None of us knows when we will meet Christ face to face and have to give an account for our life. So what other way is there to go than to fall on our knees, to surrender and say, Jesus, Heavenly Father, welcome me into your kingdom for the sake of Jesus. I plead his blood. I want him as my surety. If I'm going to the court before God and I don't, I don't want to be my own defendant in the court of heaven, I want Jesus to advocate for me. So put all your trust in Jesus. Cling to him for mercy. That is the way of salvation, and it's available. There's none that has done so much wrong that Christ is not willing to advocate for if you will only ask and hope in him. He delights in showing mercy. Let's pray. God, you delight in showing mercy, and mercy does indeed triumph over judgment because the mercy you have shown in Christ the one who received divine judgment so that your people could be saved, is the greatest act of grace and mercy. Lord, would none here, would none here fail to attain the grace of God, to delay any longer, to say, I'll decide when I'm older, to, to try and live a good enough life to earn your favor. Lord, would we each recognize our need of you. When we see the guilt in our own hearts, Lord, help us to look to Jesus. When we hear the condemning voice of our conscience, let us look to Jesus. When Satan would accuse us, 
and call us to look within. Help us to look without to the great and gracious Savior and Lord. And would we each grow every day in faith and repentance, every day anew confessing our sins to you, praying forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, lead us in the ways of righteousness. Help us to ever cherish Christ, the one who pardons our guilt, the one who has in store for us a kingdom of perfect peace. Would these truths ignite our hearts with greater love for him. We pray these things for his honor and glory. Amen.